One of the things that can affect our health and well-being is the place where we live, our sense of belonging in that place and the services we access there. But how can local government and the NHS really work together to cultivate a sense of place? Welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we explore the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Ruth Robertson, a senior fellow here at the King's Fund, and I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Carolyn Wilkins, OBE. She's an experienced public sector leader who is also a professor at the Birmingham Leadership Institute. She previously held a dual role as firstly the Chief Executive of Oldham Council, and then also taking on an NHS role as the Accountable Officer of Oldham Clinical Commissioning Group. She's also worked at national level, leading the contain element of the Test and Trace programme during the pandemic in 2020. Carolyn is also an art lover and a writer, so she's someone with many interests and lots of strings to her bow. Welcome, Carolyn. Hi, Ruth. Lovely to be here. Thank you. I wondered if we could start by delving a bit more into your career history. Up until 2021, you were Chief Executive at Oldham Council. Mm -hmm. But how did it all begin? Why did you choose a career in local government? Was it a choice? (laughs) Yeah, no, it absolutely was a choice. So um, I went to Leeds University uh, first in my family to go to university to do uh, psychology. I did a BSc in psychology, which I did really enjoy. I thought I wanted to stay on and do clinical psychology. I was fortunate in my final year to be working with a with a psychiatrist at St James's Hospital in Leeds with young women with eating disorders at 21 probably I didn't have the reserves and the resources to to draw on in the way that perhaps I needed to so I wasn't quite sure what to do wanted to work in the public sector and I was fortunate again that it was a time when there were a lot of kind of graduate trainee uh, opportunities in the public sector so I applied for a range of them and decided to join Bolton Council actually in the committee section. I don't think I was the best committee administrator (laughs) that the world has ever seen but what was really fantastic was from day one working really at the heart of the governance in that that service you're involved in all the decision making you work really closely with elected members and senior officers from across the council so it, it was a fabulous grounding and from then on moved more into sort of policy development and regeneration so also worked in Salford so yes very much a deliberate choice to work in the public sector I am a passionate advocate and supporter of the public sector and public services. And even though now I'm in the academic sector, still working very, very closely with colleagues across local government and NHS. I wanted to ask you what surprised you most when you first started working with the NHS and made that leap from local government uh, into the health service? Yeah, so it was, I mean, we've worked closely with the NHS clearly as as a major partner working alongside but I think stepping into actually being employed by the NHS and actually having a senior role within an NHS organisation you just have a a different lens different take I think the financial regimes as well the ability that local government has to raise fund you know income generation holding assets being able to do medium term financial planning because of some of the resources although they're increasingly increasingly challenged but that annual financial round in the NHS for 
for long-term service. I just found that really um, strange. And I think as well, some of that sort of short-term planning approach and the limitations of some of it. So for example, if you're going to build X number of new kind of houses in a borough, you need to address things like the capacity of your uh, refuse collection round. And you'll get to a point where that means you need to buy some more refuse collection vehicles to put extra crews on. Whereas having more people turn up at A&E, you've still got the same constraint on the building. So it might have been built for a capacity of 220, say, uh, but you're now getting 420. And then you're surprised the performance drops. So, you know, some of those kind of surprise, surprising kind of, you know, so difference of language. I mean, it struck me in working in all the roles. So CX in local government stands for chief exec. In Test and Trace, it was customer experience. In central government, it was Chancellor of the Exchequer. So just two letters in different settings stand for different things. So I found that quite surprising. What it highlighted for me is something that I feel very strongly about anyway is labels. I really dislike entering a hospital, seeing a sign that says every patient matters because it sort of suggests that until you were ill, you didn't really matter. And that's partly why place matters so much to me, because places where patients live their lives as people, where they have that kind of broader experience, the wider determinants, and to not take account of that. Now, increasingly, absolutely, the NHS does and and seen some sort of stunning examples across the country of work to do that. But the danger is that we narrow down, don't we, our lens through the lens of label, and it restricts how we see people and it frames what we do and how we intervene. When I've spoken to leaders like you who've worked across local government and the NHS and they've really driven changes that have have taken into account health, but also those really important wider determinants of health, often the examples they give me of, of the things that have been really successful have been done by sort of breaking the rules or maybe bending the rules and finding workarounds. And I just wondered what your view was on that. Do you have to break the rules to make integration work across those sectors? So that's a great question. You might not even be aware of the rules, actually, might you? So, you know, you learn them three decades in local government. I've, I don't know all the rules. A much shorter period in the NHS, I definitely don't know all the rules. But I think you do have to have quite a high appetite for risk. But in the doing of it, I think you also need to have really good grounding and uh, rationale for the things that you do. I remember the decision that was taken in Oldham in the early stages of the COVID vaccine to vaccinate people that were living on the street, homeless people. The judgment taken locally was those people were clinically vulnerable and therefore should be in the early stages. Now, that wasn't directly in line with the Joint Committee on Vaccine and Immunisation. So there was a degree of challenge um, that we received on that. So I think it's being able to weigh things up in terms of what is the rule, what are the rules, what are the, uh, but why are they the rules? You know, so what is it that's underpinning that so that actually the clear underpinnings with the people that were most clinically vulnerable were prioritised in vaccination. Absolutely right. Anybody would argue with that. And then the interpretation of that locally. But you're right, I think there's definitely something about dancing on the boundary between your authority and the leadership space, making sure that you, you know, absolutely pushing that and as far as it can go, but not leaving it behind. 
you know, you're pushing the envelope or if you just left the envelope and everybody else miles behind you. And I think a lot of innovation happens in spite of the rules and the infrastructure, not because of them. But for me, at the core of it was, what's the purpose of this? What's the question at the heart of it that we're trying to address? And just being really clear about whose interests are we working in? This is about doing the right thing for your population now in this moment. Yeah, and it's interesting that you gave an example there from the pandemic, because I guess that was a moment where we had such a clear sense of purpose that perhaps breaking some of those rules in order to do something that you, you felt was right was perhaps perhaps a bit easier and people might have felt a bit more permission to do that. So can we move on now to talk a bit more specifically about place? I know you've spoken before about deep rootedness in place. I heard you talk about that, I think, at a Kingsfund conference a, a few years ago and the idea that public organisations should be not just in the place but of the place I just wondered if you could say something about what that really means in practice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it means a, a whole range of things, not seeing as, as just organisations that deliver a set of services and are somehow removed from the place. I mean, local government with its democratic accountability means that you have elected members who are very much of the communities they're elected from, you know, elected on a manifesto on things that they're committed to seeing happen uh, for their people and their places. The hospital and the council in Oldham were the two biggest employers. So if you also look at it in terms of the workforce, over 70% of the workforce of the council came from the borough, lived in the borough. I think it was over 90% came from within Greater Manchester. So if you're doing things to improve the health and well-being of your workforce, you're also improving the health and well-being of the wider population. Now, that might be things like commitment to foundation living wage. We had, I think it was 70 or so, mental health first aiders. The senior leadership team, we all did the initial mental health first awareness training, programmes on things like menopause, you know, physical activity, all sorts of ways that you can impact on the health and well-being of your direct workforce and therefore the community. We also did work to map who we employed and where do they live. And looking against that through the lens of indices of deprivation and making a commitment then to change the profile of our workforce, making it easier for people to, um, well, for our workforce to be even more representative of the communities that we're supporting. And then all the things around kind of social value, community wealth building, the way that you can look at things and then the diversity of conversation around design. You might have heard me say before as well about, you know, what gets designed is dictated by who's in the room when you're doing the designing. So if you want services that are really connected to the needs of your communities, the work to involve, you know, and um, I think we've come a long way. I think we've got an awful lot further to go. There was a great example, a community group in uh, the Werneth Ward. Uh, I think it, so uh, Oldham was in the, about the top 10, I think, of areas for prescribing related to diabetes. And the national programme was developed, but a lot of it in the, in the early stages was very Western-centric, Western-centric diet written in English, not really connecting to those communities. So working with the primary care providers, the CCG, broader partners, working with the community to develop a programme that actually addressed the same outcome, but did it in a way that suited the needs of that community. 
So place just matters for all, all kinds of reasons. And it's interesting that you drew out place as one of the things that have been consistently a focus throughout your years working in local government. What's different now and what are the sort of leading edge priorities for people thinking about place-based working at the, at the moment? Yeah, so, I mean, it, again, it happens on a range of levels, doesn't it? I think we're getting greater connectivity between the physical environment uh, of place and the role that that plays, you know, so again, in Greater Manchester, an awful lot of work on active travel, about places where people feel, you know, able to be out and about doing things that the, the physical infrastructure, whether that's the quality of housing, you know, all of that kind of thing, connecting to the broader health and well-being agenda. So I think that's one thing on that sort of strategic level. I think um, because we have seen that fragmentation of public services, there is much more emphasis needed on working collectively as place partners. So again, a difference between being a team of leaders of organisations that get together every now and again to being the strategic leadership team for that place uh, where you've got shared endeavour and a collective purpose. And then I think, you know, some of the big challenges around how do we collect data? How do we have a single view of our, a single understanding of our communities? How do you have priorities because we get tensions between organizations systems places uh how do we work you know we just work collectively to keep keep working to resolve those kind of issues yeah and how do you go about bringing that leadership team together and getting people to collaborate across a place so i think you've got to do the work to understand each other's perspectives i wrote a piece recently actually for the lgc about the danger of othering each other, particularly when we're under pressure. You know, we, we hear it a lot, don't we? Um, oh, NHS or local government or, you know, if only primary care would sort themselves out, there wouldn't be a problem at A&E. None of these are true. <laughs> so, and I suppose it's why I've spent quite a lot of my time deliberately putting myself into different contexts and different settings. So whether it's a governor at the college locally or the, because, you know, working in the NHS at the same time as working in local government, being able to hold those different kind of realities and understand them more deeply. So I think we just have to keep working harder at that. I think we have to assume good intent, not that people are out to necessarily frustrate things, but that perhaps we haven't got a deep enough understanding of, of context and of and each other's. And actually the interdependencies of so many things, recognising how important it is to brigade all the resources that we have because the, the challenges we're facing aren't ever going to be fixed just by one agency acting in isolation. I mean, they never were, but I think it's just really clear these days just how interdependent everything is. I'm really fascinated with this point you made about othering people. And I've been thinking a lot recently about the impact of the way we've been working during the pandemic, often online. Perhaps it's a little bit easier to other people when you don't see them face to face. I wonder if you had any reflections on what impact that has had on um, collaborative working? Yeah, so I think, so I am fascinated by relationships and trust my doctorates in the relationship between trust and control in organisations. So uh, I have deep interest in it. And I'm also interested in how we create environments for leaders. We can have task conflict, so we can really disagree on the issue before us. But how do we ensure that doesn't spill over into personal conflict or relationship conflict as we move more into hybrid working? 
are we reliant more on thin trust when we're working in um, in a kind of virtual space rather than quite thick or deep trust that perhaps is developed and kept growing really by the side conversations that we have about you know how's your family did you know all of that kind of thing that's not the core business but actually is really core to relationships and relationship building that's fascinating and those are terms I haven't heard before thin and thick trust could you say a little bit more about the difference between those and how we get from thin to thick yeah. I mean it's that when you start looking at the trust research there's loads and loads I mean there's so many different ways of um so many prefix words competency trust uh yeah but thick and thin is one way of looking at it where thin trust is kind of you've done me no harm yet but I don't know you very well so it's fairly thin trust but it would be quite fragile as well so it's quick to form but it's also quite quick to break Whereas uh, thick trust or deep trust is seen as something that is much more um, evolutionary. It's, it's been built up over time, maybe, not necessarily long time. It might be the depth of experience. So again, I think we saw in COVID working with people that we didn't really know, but we were entirely reliant on. So at the heart of a lot of definitions of trust is this idea of vulnerability. So I'm, you know, in trusting you, I am vulnerable to you and trusting you'll do what you said you were going to do when you said you're going to do it I'm kind of vulnerable to that if it doesn't happen deep trust is more resilient so you might let me down once or twice but because we've got that depth of trust it doesn't break quite so easily it's not quite so fragile so they're the kind of the headline ideas but then there's a lot written about distrust as a kind of active construct in its own right and that can be formed Again, you know, through stereotypes, there's lots of tension between, I mean, I remember when I started at the CCG and doing one of the first meetings and I had, could hear there was a couple of people at the front talking and one of them was going, she's not a proper doctor. She, she's not a proper doctor. She's from local government. <laughs> it was like, okay, fine. So that sense of that I was the enemy, I was definitely other. And so there was actually, there, there wasn't trust. There was active distrust in the room. Uh, but actually just understanding that as part of the context we're operating in, where do we think trust and distrust is? Uh, because then that shapes how we act and behave, but it might, it definitely shapes how we're perceived. I'm really keen to also talk to you a bit more about your leadership journey We've talked about your CV and the fact you've been a leader across different sectors, local government, the NHS, central government. How has your leadership style changed over time and across those different contexts? Yeah, so I think, you know, I'm I'm naturally much more kind of collaborative, less directive, but certain situations absolutely need you to be more directive. I've got much more naturally, I suppose, an adaptive leadership style where it's about, you know, the questions to ask. It's about creating the environment for people to act. That's fine. But if you've got a major incident, then people don't want to be asked for their opinion necessarily about what it is we should be doing to tackle this major fire. So um, I've definitely developed that kind of flexibility and that ability to kind of... Um, code switch a bit really I suppose but depending on the on the task that's presented I've got much better at focusing on the why of the thing rather than the what and having a longer 
a longer lens on it, recognizing that, you know, however much I'd want to fix this immediately, I think experience brings that, you know, there are some things absolutely you can always do now, but there is a longer burn on a lot of things that we're trying to to deal with, you know, early years, you can absolutely put things in place to deal with it now. But the kind of the benefit is going to take 10, 15, 20 years to kind of see. And so you might not be around to see the success of that. And that's, that's absolutely fine. And I suppose that I've got, I've got much better at kind of working with people that I don't agree with. And whilst it, you know, because it's it's a bit easy for all of us, I think, to just work with people who agree with us or we share the same kind of perspective. I think I'm much more alive to the danger of that. You know, at points in my career, I've worked with coaches who have seen the world really differently from me. And I've probably disagreed on pretty much anything. But what that has enabled me to do is really dig into the why. Why don't I agree? Why isn't that my view? What is it about my experience, my values, that means I'm close to that way of thinking? Because actually, what if that way of thinking is what's needed now? Yeah, so always learning, always really kind of curious, I think. And I've never lost that kind of curiosity, watching people and thinking, I, I really admire that. I'd like to be able to do that. How can I go about that? Or I, oh, I don't know that I'd have said that or done that. Why? Why wouldn't I not? but would that have worked? So questioning curiosity. I've been doing a bit of internet stalking on you before the podcast. And I think I'm right in saying you've got a master's degree in English literature and colleagues have told me you're very interested in art. I'd be really interested to hear a bit more about that side of your personality and whether and how that feeds into your leadership style. Yeah, yeah. So I love books. And if you could see the room, I am surrounded by books. So I've always loved reading. I think I've got something like 83 books left to read in the 1001 books to read before you die. I mean, there are some shockers on that list, actually. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. So yeah, I've got a master's in public administration. uh, So I did that for work and then decided to do an MA in literature with the Open University, actually, which was brilliant. I use it a lot. So I use a lot of, uh, there's an idea in, well, there's two ideas in in the arts, one of intertextuality. So about kind of cross-fertilisation of ideas, whether that's between different organisations or different sectors, uh, different places. The other is, um, I think it was Russian formulas, somebody listening to this will probably correct me, but the view that the role of art is to make the everyday strange so that you pay attention to it again. And for me, the role of leadership is to do that, is to make everyday strange so that we help people notice what they're doing and think about it, but think about it critically. So use that kind of academic critical thinking in terms of why are we doing the thing we're doing? Whose interests are served by this? Whose interests are not served by this? What's its value to me in my kind of leadership journey and development? Actually, all those ideas about narrative, framing, how we deliberately construct identities, how we other people. There was a lot of focus on the, you know, we are this because we're the in-group and therefore we construct you as that because you're the out-group. I use those ideas in terms of um, the leadership work around how do we genuinely lead for inclusion and have inclusive leadership and, you know, just challenge things. So, and then I, I use a lot of quotes from there's one quote I when I'm talking about leadership, it's from an Andre Brink novel about um, and it says there, there are two kinds of madness that we need to guard against in this world. The first is the belief we can do everything. And the second is the belief we can do nothing because, you know, however challenging things are, we can always do something. So, yeah, so I, I use it a lot, actually. 
I'd love to keep talking to you about arts and literature, but let me move on to ask you a bit about the different levels you've worked in during your career. You've obviously worked in local government, you've worked at a local NHS, regional level, and you've worked in national government as well. At which level do you think you were able to have the most impact? Oh, that's an interesting question. I suppose the national roles have been fairly short term, you know, so test and trace was 10 months, the number 10, five months, I think, and were for specific pieces of work. I mean, I certainly feel, you know, the relentless pressure in test and trace to scale up the testing infrastructure, the lab capacity, get things out on the ground, all the inquiry and things will will go on and what will be judged will be judged, but actually just that work. But then connecting that to local communities about where those testing sites needed to be, what people needed to be able to ha- to be true in their own lives, to be able to have a test and then follow the guide and all of that kind of work. But the lack of understanding about local government, I think. So part of the reason I stepped into the role was a really deep frustration that we were seen as a stakeholder to be managed as opposed to an absolutely core essential part of the infrastructure to tackle the pandemic. And so just constantly kind of bringing that local leadership, that local perspective, that statutory responsibility, actually. And then across my career in local government, I suppose, you know, operational turnaround, organisational turnaround in Rossendale, you know, we went from poor to good. Under the old CPO regime, I think we were only one of three councils to do that triple jump, not very many. And then issues, you know, like the troubled families, the complex dependency working. Yes, there's lots of lots of areas really where um, made a contribution. Yeah, so really interesting how perhaps rather than having most impact at one of those levels of the system, you you were able to have a huge impact by being this translator between levels. That's that's fascinating. And you mentioned there and what motivated you to to step up into that that really quite high profile and very important, I imagine, quite high stress role. Personally, was it a difficult decision to put yourself forward into that type of role that was always going to be subject to, to so much scrutiny and, and was so high profile at the, at the time? Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, the level of sort of animosity. Well, just everybody, you know, how heightened it all was, quite rightly. You know, people scared. And why wouldn't you be, you know, all of us. And I think what struck me, again, for all of us was that whilst we might be really experienced at dealing with major incidents, usually you leave that and go home and it's safe. Whereas there's, there was no leaving this, was there for any of us? This was everywhere and it was in every interaction that we were having. So yeah, I think, yes, it was challenging, but to be honest, I think everybody, every role that everybody was doing, the level of risk for all of us, was just ferocious, wasn't it? Yes, ferocious is a good word. Um, We're coming to the end of our time and I've just got one final question. I just wondered what's a piece of advice that you'd give to others who are considering stepping up into a more senior role? It's something that you've done in various different ways throughout your career. Yeah, so be really clear about why you want to do it and how the role fits with you and you know who you are because well for me always it's a bit it's been about the impact understanding what it is that you the difference that you think you can make in that role and why that will be you know an important uh, important move to make in terms of that sort of senior leadership role 
And think about who also is in your kind of support networks. And I mean, you know, your personal networks as well as your organisational networks. Your own personal ability to thrive in a role is just really, key, you know, it's just really key, isn't it? You can be really good at a role, but it not be good for you. So how do you bring the two things together so that you thrive and um, the organisation thrives because you're there doing the things that you you have deep passion for? Brilliant. Thank you, Carolyn. And good to end on a top tip for people listening today. Thank you so much for joining me. I've really enjoyed it. And I know people listening will have too. You can find the show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes at www.kingsfund.org.uk forward slash KF podcast. And you can get in touch with us via Twitter. Our account is at the Kings Fund. This episode was edited by Bespoken Media. Thank you also to our podcast team for this episode, Charlotte Wickens, Ian Ford, Chris Naylor, Dirka Dougal and Dave Buck. Don't forget to subscribe, share, rate and review this episode wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, thank you to you for listening. We hope you can join us next time.